Hi there. A quick message before we start. Don't forget that you can save money this winter when you book your ski hire at intersportrent.com and use the code SKIPODCAST. You'll get a guaranteed discount for all ski hire in France, Austria and Switzerland. And to make it even simpler, you don't even need to use that code. Just take the link in the show notes and your basket will automatically be reduced. So if you want to support the Ski Podcast, remember to book your ski hire within support and to use the code Ski Podcast or take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Right, let's get on with the show. Welcome to episode 183 of the Ski Podcast and thanks for joining us, listener. Today we're going to be finding out what Val Terenz is like in summer how Australian ski resorts are dealing with lift queues and all about the latest campaign from Protect Our Winters. Uh, my name is Ian Martin. I'd like to introduce my guest today. I'd like to welcome back Jen Sang. Regular listeners will know Jen's voice. She'd been on the show several times. I think the last episode was 164 and uh, normally reporting from La Plane where she lives. Uh, hi Jen, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. It's great to be back again. Thanks for having me. Uh, can I ask where are you today? So I'm in Cardigan in southwest Wales this morning, um, visiting family and friends. OK, well, I'm sure it's very uh, uh, lovely there. Shame I was going to ask you what the view is like out the window. Um, but I know it's pretty it's beautiful. Pretty, <laughs> right. Pretty warm in the Alps at the moment. I'll come back to that mm. a, a little bit mm. later on. I'd also like to welcome back Lindsay Dixon from Protect Our Winters. She was last on the show in episode 168 when she was telling us about taking the train to Val where she was lucky enough to spend much of last winter. Uh, hi, Lindsay. How are you going? I'm good, thanks, Ian. How are you? Yeah, very well. Whereabouts are you today? Um, I'm also visiting family, actually. I'm just outside London, um, planning to take my mum out for a birthday lunch. Excellent. So a question I always like to ask my guests, uh, might be a little predictable uh, asking this question in the middle of August, but when did you last ski or snowboard? Uh, Jen, when was that? Oh, the last day of the season in La Plan. <clears throat> so it was right at the end of April on the 29th. And uh, we always make a real effort to get out for first lifts on the first day of the season. And we try and get last lifts on the last day of the season. Um, I don't think we stuck it out quite that long this year because it was the snow was there was actually a lot of snow. It was pretty great, but it was quite warm. And halfway through the day, we started with some rain and some very slushy snowfall. Uh, so I think we called it quite early. Um, but we did do some marmot spotting while we were out and about on the slopes. And we managed to count quite a few marmots, which was fun. Oh, so you didn't get literally the last lift of the season, but just to track back, then do you normally try and get literally the first lift of the season when they first start turning, you try and get on those? We try. I say, and you can't see me because it's a podcast, but I try. Since having children, the ability to get out of the house for 8.30 or 9 o'clock in the morning is somewhat hampered. Um, so we might be uh, maybe on the... 10th or 11th lift. <laughs> yeah, not bad. Uh, Lindsay, what about yourself? Uh, when were you last on snow? On snow would have been in the winter, but I last skied last month. Um, I went and had a go at the that ski easy thing, you know, where it's like a treadmill. Um, yes, I know that. Um, yeah, yeah, I had a, I had a crack at that um, about three or four weeks ago, which was interesting. Um, it's, I mean, it's not quite being out on snow, but it was still quite good fun. Yeah, whereabouts did you do that? Um, in Chiswick, 
um there's yeah. a because i think they used to be chelsea but i think that's closed now and now they have a yeah. um one of those yeah, I've, in I've been yeah. i've been to that one in in chiswick as well there's like a david lloyd or something that it's in isn't it like a, yeah there's a, like a, a there's a golf club there. and some tennis or something yeah. there as well i, I yeah, actually was... found um that experience on skiing on on the treadmill however you want to describe it uh, as being pretty damn hard because you've got to be really <laughs> focused on your technique haven't you it's very unforgiving and I think probably quite good for, you know, if you want to, if you want to really focus on technique, but yeah, as a, it's also very bizarre for a first time on it. Cause you obviously you sort of going backwards and you're trying to stay, you're, you're trying to manage your speed so that you're sort of stationary in, in space and time. <laughs> um, well, while the floor's moving. So it's, uh, yeah, it's unusual, but it was, it was quite, it's cool. Cool to have a go. Yeah. I thoroughly uh, recommend it to anyone who's taking kids out skiing or anyone out skiing for the for the first time because my kids have been to those type of features. I think they were called Skiplex. The uh, the company had several of them because at one point there's one in Basingstoke and one in Bracknell, the one in Chiswick as well. Uh, there's actually one relatively uh, near me called Moving Mountains in in Sussex, and they are really really good. And what I, I really liked about them for the for the kids, the instructor can stand at the front and can just switch a button to turn the the treadmill as you put it off at any time so if you know someone falls over you can just stop it or if they want to discuss technique and in most of the ones that i've been to there's a mirror at the front as well so anyone who's doing it you get an immediate visual feedback on your own skiing which can be good or bad depending how mm. it's going <laughs> i i found that really useful and especially because because obviously it's not cold either so you're kind of in normal gear rather than all the layers so you can really see obviously you've got that immediate visual feedback but you can also um just just really see your body positioning and your angles and stuff um a lot more easily than on say um you know video feedback when you're on snow yeah and uh, as i said that's not always a good thing is it <laughs> <laughs> no that's true yeah you think oh i'm such a brilliant skier and then you see yourself on video it's like one of the things that you know warren smith and, and various other people always incorporate video into their uh, into their lessons um just on the theme of uh, snowboarding uh, last i uh, have skied uh, relatively recently uh, in that uh, regular listeners will know if they've listened to episode 182 that i was in australia about a month ago where i skied uh, in Perisher and in Threadbow. Uh, and if all goes well, uh, with a bit of luck, I might be skiing again next week because I'm going out to the Alps uh, and I'm heading to uh, Zermatt and there's a reasonable chance that I might be able to sneak in at least a few turns. So that would be that would be really exciting. I think I'd probably still count that as adding on to my 22-23 season rather than starting the, the next one. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. But that's just one of the things you can do in the mountains. You know, I'm going to be going to the Alps and doing a bit of uh, hiking, maybe skiing and some definitely some trail running. Uh, Jen, I wanted to have you uh, on the show because uh, I know you live in the mountains. You live in La Plan. Uh, but more recently, you've just been over to uh, Val Terenz on a, a short trip there with your family. Um, was that a bit of a busman's holiday for you? <laughs> What's it like being, you know, going to a ski resort in summer? Um, it's brilliant. So we always, all, the expat community in La Plan and also in the other resorts that I, where I have friends, we always say you arrive for the winters um, and then you stay for the summers because they are truly spectacular. Um, and it's also when the pace of life just slows down a little bit and you have more time. There's just more time to catch up with friends 
spend time with family and just to really pause and enjoy the alpine kind of atmosphere and lifestyle um and I think we all know uh working in hospitality and things it's absolutely manic so in the winter we just don't have time to visit other places and see other friends I mean I can't I live in the plan I live in plan center and I can't often get to plan 1800 which is 200 meters down the mountain you know to catch up with friends it's just life is just full full speed ahead and so getting to another ski resort is impossible and so this summer we really wanted to make the commitment to go and see some of these other resorts in the summer because they are all so incredibly different and so yeah it was great to get the time to go up to Valterrenz um, and really explore it and I don't know it the area well in the winter or in the summer so it was really good fun to just go with a kind of clean slate and get up there and explore and see what we could find um, and with the kids as well and explore from the family angle. Oh, and remind me, how old are your kids? So they are five and six, nearly seven. So there's two years between them. Yeah, and and so what um, did you do? I mean, I have, I'm trying to remember if I've been to Valterens uh, in summer. I've certainly been to Le Travelet in summer. I'm going to be in Valterens next week. Uh, but, uh, you know, what's, what's uh, on offer there at this time of year? So we picked the weekend where they were having the Summit Games, which is a lot of it's a big trail running event. So they have uh, over a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, different events. Like a, there's, they start with a crazy cross on the first day, which is a bit of a, like a parkour fun style uh, event. And then there's the more serious comp- uh, competitions like the 10K and I think I forget how long, but like 25k, 40k kind of events. Um, and we took part in the family walk, which is just very super relaxed, like very easy going. You take the lifts all the way up to the top of Valterens and then walk all the way back down. It's about five kilometers on the way back down. So yeah, we went for the weekend when that was happening to to do that. And then also to be able to explore the other bits and things that were in Valterens and also in Liminweir and in the surrounding little villages as well. So at the moment, it's pretty uh, warm uh, over in the mountains. I think the weather was, uh, you know, less predictable when you were there. Is that right? It really was. And um, it just goes to show that it doesn't matter how much you travel or whether you live in the mountains or not. Sometimes you are just completely caught off guard by the dramatic (laughs) temperatures and the environment. And so when we drove up to VT on the Friday, it was very overcast and quite sleety in the air. Um, and it did snow that night. It was incredible. We were kind of perched in the clouds where we were staying and we could see the snow line kind of just up above us. And on the Saturday, it did clear and we had gorgeous weather. It was really, really lovely. So we had a lovely day exploring on the Saturday. And then the Sunday, which was when we did the family walk, uh, it, it had snowed again. And when we got up to the top peaks where the walk started, we <laughs> we kind of got out of the gondola um, and just walked into a blizzard, essentially. And um, not, not just, necessarily <laughs> what you're expecting in, in August, right? <laughs> no, absolutely not. And it's so stupid, but we just didn't we just weren't prepared. You know, we hadn't put any woolly hats in for the kids. We didn't have gloves with us. So, yeah, it was interesting. It was still really good fun, but we were we were really taken off guard. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jen, you're being very you're being very honest there. But, you know, it's a fact that in the mountains at any time, you know, the weather can change uh, uh, really quickly yeah for sure but I think in Valterens when I went in December uh, Le Borde was just uh, opening up and that's their new sports centre uh, there and it hadn't really all the features weren't uh, really there but I did wander around if this would be a brilliant place to, to take the kids they would absolutely love it 
um you went there and tried it out yeah so we went a couple of times and it really is fantastic so when we went we you kind of enter from kind of below and it was only the following day when we were doing the walk that when you're up on the lift looking back towards it it's shaped like a snowboard which is why it's called Le Board. and it's it's a really kind of quite beautiful building um and so yeah we went and we explored we went on the first day with the kids and we went to the pool which was brilliant fun so they've got a really lovely really modern really fresh swimming pool there uh, the kids really enjoyed it and then I ducked out to just have a look at the wellness area and um, I don't think I returned <laughs> back to the family for a good half an hour. <laughs> it's really really big I didn't realize because it's it's kind of tucked away and you really can't see it at all and it's access only for adults so I think it's uh, 16 years and upwards and it's really really big there's loads of saunas and steam rooms there's an ice like plunge pool um, it, yeah really really nice so you really can do the family kind of side of it and there's a little slide into the pool and bubble jets and uh, like jacuzzi style in the pool for the kids to have fun um but then you can kind of separate off and go and do the adult thing as well um yeah it was really really great yeah i mean that sounds similar to the setup they have at aquamotion in Cauchyville 1650 which we've been to with our kids a whole bunch of times and there's an adult section you know uh upstairs with the sauna and the uh steam room uh, etc and you know we kind of play tags <laughs> go up there and just yeah. uh just uh chill out uh you know while the kids you know jump around and go off the diving boards and stuff like that talking which do they have any diving boards in the board because my kids have always liked this like lack of uh the the different approach to health and safety uh that we've seen in french swimming pools compared with the uk <laughs> yeah it was there was nothing like that there's a small uh, little slide which I was quite good for my kids so you know seven six-year-olds um there is a couple of lanes that are kind of roped off so there was a couple of adults there doing some laps which was quite good um and then the pool area was very kind of free form but no the, the lifeguards I would say as well were absolutely fantastic they were kind of wandering around and interacting with the kids and throwing stuff in for them to jump in for and dive as well so it was it was good you feel welcome as a family without interrupting the adults which is good Oh, well, I think uh, regular listeners will know, you know, triathlon is one of my uh, hobbies and I've swam in lots of different ski resorts uh, around uh, the Alps. And I can tell you that before there used to be, uh, get the right choice of word here, a not very good swimming pool in Val Terenz. But I did, I did uh, swim there and you're swimming at 2,300 metres above sea level. And I can tell you that that's a bloody good workout. You know, it's really hard to do any kind of exercise at that level, but, uh, you know, swimming up there. So, you know, if you want to do some, uh, you know, training, that can work. And um, they've also got like, outside of the the aqua side of things, there's other facili uh, facilities and features at the board as well, right? Yeah, so we had a kind of an explore and a walk around the whole facility. So they've also got a full gym and fitness sauna thing there, which we didn't go into, but it looks really well set up, really well established. There's a massive sports hall as well. There was lots of different activities organised through the week, like badminton and table tennis and all that kind of stuff. Um, but they've also got, and this was the thing that my kids had the most fun on the whole weekend that we were there, is this huge soft play area. And we kept calling it the fun zone. I'm not sure if that's actually what it's called, um, but it's massive. Um, so it's free for under fives. And then I think uh, for an unlimited, I could be wrong, but I think for an unlimited amount of time, it's 10 euros for older kids. 
Um, and it is the best money that we spent probably the whole weekend. So we went in and it's huge. They've got some little go-karts that you can kind of drive around on a little track in there. There's huge climbing structures. There's about four or five different slides into foam pits and ball pools. I mean, they can absolutely just go nuts. And for children my age, it was great because they just went off and it was they were just completely unsupervised, but they were safe. So I actually sat on the sofa and read my book for a couple of hours, which was unheard of <laughs> so i would really yeah all parents that. all parents love a good a good uh soft play uh place where there's actually a chance to uh, just sit down and have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee sorry i was gonna say that's the only thing it was missing was there wasn't there was a there's a vending machine but it could if it if they'd had a decent a coffee machine or a cafe or a small little snack stop we would have been there so much longer because we we only left because we had to drag them away to lunch um maybe that's the point is that they want you to get out and go so some other people can come and enjoy but if they'd been a good coffee machine i would have stayed there all day <laughs> cool and um you know talking about um you know food and drink uh, you know what did how did you find uh, a vt in summer was were most of the places open that would be open in in winter or was there less available um i think it was quite quiet um i don't think a lot of the restaurants actually in the resort are open um what i was really was that there was lots of supermarkets open which again with kids was fantastic so there's the spa and a sherpa and quite a few different places which we could pick up a really nice selection of, of stuff for our and take it home for the evening um and there what there were some really lovely places open that we just stopped for pizza and things with the kids in resort and then on the Saturday when we had really lovely weather, we headed down back towards kind of Liminwear and we went to a really lovely restaurant called um, Chez, I'm going to get it the wrong way around, Chez Pepe Nicolas. Beautiful. It's basically a, um, a farm and you go in and you walk up through the gardens and there's just these huge gardens of all the vegetables planted to so all the lettuce and the broccoli and the courgettes and everything and all the fruit plants and the herbs. And you walk through that and then into the farm and there's um, uh, a pond with trout in that's on the menu when they've got goats and pigs and cows. Absolutely fantastic. So you can really walk around and just or enjoy all of that with absolutely stunning views down the valley back towards um, Le Minuire and then go into the restaurant and order off the menu all the things that you've just seen growing in the garden so um it was really um eating with all your senses you know it was I had to get I had to get a salad because I'd seen all the vegetables in the garden and they just tasted fantastic um but I have to say it kind of made me quite annoyed because I can't even get a mint plant to grow in a garden box in La Plan and everyone always tells me it's because of the altitude and then I went there and I was like huh. <laughs> okay so it's nothing to do with the altitude it's just that I don't have green fingers so yeah I mean Shay Shay Pepe uh, Nicola is uh, an amazing place and and it's open in winter as well I'd recommend you know that uh, people go along but you know you talk about locally sourced uh, items mm. I mean it can't get more locally sourced than being within you know 50 meters of the uh, of the venue uh, itself and they make their own cheese there as well uh, yeah when we came out of lunch we we didn't realize we timed it quite well when we came out of lunch there's a big uh, garden and they uh, put down a huge line of feed for some animals and we thought oh you know what what is about to run out and get this and basically about 50 goats just hurled down the mountain and started eating <laughs> at this at this trough 
Um, and the, then the shepherds were there and they were milking the goats while we were there and they were talking to the kids and explaining about it. So it it really, I think, I, I mean, I love the locally grown produce. I always really struggle to find it sometimes in the Alps. And so it really ticked so many boxes for me. But the fact that the kids could kind of be there and interact and learn a bit and understand that, oh, cheese comes from milk. Oh, okay, goat's cheese comes from milk. Oh, the goats, you know, and kind of put it all together in a, in a, in a whole story. Um, yeah, it was really fantastic. I'd love to go there again in the winter and just see because obviously the gardens and things will not be there, I would imagine, because of the snow and the, the ice. So I'd love to see how they kind of manage it in the winter. Sure, it's a great venue. And just just to clarify as well, you know, Val Torrens, uh, is at the end of the uh, Belleville Valley. Uh, you drove up there, I take it. You know, they have mm. a lot of big car parks there. I'm guessing they're all uh, empty. Are they still charge in summer for the car, for the car park? Um, I didn't, I don't think so. There was a lot of parking that was just available on the roads and things, which I think is very different to the winter. So we could pull up and we could park. So we were staying in the Pierre and Vacances um, accommodation in Valterens and we were able to pull up and park uh, really close by to unload the car and then just move it slightly further down, down the hill. Um, no problem at all. And you mentioned that, you know, you've been trying to see more of the uh, mountains uh, as well. Have you been any uh, to any other resorts uh, this summer? Uh, yes, yeah, so we've tried to explore around the plan as much, of course. Um, my kids go over to a bike club in Teen, so we try to get over to Teen. That's like once a week, um, so that's really good fun. And we had some friends come out for an alpine holiday in Morzine, and we went and joined them for a week in a really beautiful chalet in Morzine. Um, and that was really fun because it was a full week-long holiday in the mountains. So it, it felt that wasn't a busman's holiday. It really was. I had to switch off the phone, switch everything off and then just enjoy some alpine time and I've never although I've lived in the mountains for nearly 20 years I don't think I've ever taken a holiday like that in the mountains so that was that was really good yeah cool and sorry you're in Morzine were you you were there when the Tour de France came through yeah so we saw the unfortunately we got in too late to see the arrival into Morzine but we watched the takeoff the following day from Leger um, and really got to enjoy some of that atmosphere and see the caravans and things moving through. Um, really incredible. From what I could see, the coordination of the event and the way that the tour had organised everything, but also that the Port de Soleil and Morzine and Leger had kind of arranged everything with shuttle buses so that you could get to the different points you needed to be at and the information that was out. It was it was really smooth. It was a very it seemed to be a very slick kind of organization. Yeah, I mean the Tour de France is huge for any uh, destination when it comes through, but uh, it can be pretty expensive for them to you know if they want to actually uh, host a finish, you got to pay the Tour de France for the uh, you know permission uh, to get included or for the authority to get included uh, on the route. But I think it pays off in terms of tourism. You know, I do some work for Les Trois-Vallées and the, the Col de la Loz, uh, which was the highest point on the Tour de France this year, in which uh, we featured the, the kind of Maribel Courchevel section in episode 182. Uh, you know, it really it drives uh, new visitors uh, and cyclists, you know, keen to these locations. I think it makes a, a huge amount of difference seeing it on the uh, TV and, you know, keeps uh, resorts names uh, in the forefront. Um, so we'll see where it goes uh, next year. But that was really interesting. Um, just tell me a little bit about the, the team bike club that your kids go to, because that must take you. I'm thinking about going down to the valley, along going up to team. It's probably uh, taking you 
um i don't know maybe a bit under an hour to get there perhaps yeah it's i would say it's about an hour um it's every week and uh they have a fantastic setup there so there must be a team of five or six uh instructors and so my kids are younger they join the morning sessions and um it runs from about may so as soon as the lifts shut in the winter they start running and it's based in team lalak so they meet there and they go out for a couple of hours and so my oldest kid is now nearly seven and he's been doing it since he was maybe four um and they just start off with really simple bike skills you know so um going weaving through cones going down the little grass uh, hills and verges and things but like really teaching them to have complete control of the bike um now he's uh six he's nearly seven um they go up on the lifts you know so he'll go up on on the lift and they'll head yeah. up and come back down the trails um he's he really enjoys his mountain biking and it's something that I'll get out and do with him quite often in the plan but in the same way that i try not to teach my kids to ski i know even less about mountain biking so i really don't teach them to mountain bike because one i don't really know what i'm talking about and two they don't listen to me anyway so um i would much rather that they went and listened to an instructor who they were actually listening to and who was teaching them how to do it correctly because i want them to have fun but they need the control first to be able to then have the fun um, and the bike club is really fantastic. I found it really good good value for money. It's a really good atmosphere. The instructors are lovely. And whilst they're off in bike club, we're able to kind of explore around Teen Lalak and, and catch up with friends over there that we know from winter seasons. Um, it's really beautiful. Like Teen Lalak, it's lovely in the summer. Everything is really kind of focused around the lake area there. Um, it's really enjoyable to spend the afternoon there. Yeah, I mean, I've um, been to Teen in summer on um, multiple occasions, uh, done a bit of skiing there, but done a lot of activities. I have so many things uh, going on there. And you talk about Lack, where you have all the tennis courts and trampolines and a brilliant mm -hmm. playground uh, down there. Also a really good aqua centre uh, there. But there's all sorts of other things going uh, uh, on as well, like slacklining and archery and air rifle shooting. And there's a mini golf up in Val Claire. It's a, a really and on the on the lake itself canoeing stand up paddle boarding and do they still have that slide where you can yes. uh, go down the slide and shoot off into the water yeah i haven't done it i've got friends that have done it it looks like fun but the fact that you have to put wetsuits and things on to do it because the lake is so cold puts me off <laughs> Got to be well, I have done it, and I've done it on skis uh, as well. Because, oh, you know, that's where a lot of a lot of the uh, people do. Mine was a bit of a, a kind of a flop off the end of the <laughs> jump into the water, but good people can use it to you know practice their uh, their moves uh, when the snow park you know isn't isn't open. Uh, cool. That is really good, Jen. You know, that was a good insight into uh, the mountains in the summer. I'm glad you guys uh, had a good uh, time. I mentioned that it is. Pretty warm over there. I'm going to the Alps uh, on Monday. I thought I'd have a look at the temperatures to see what the story is because I'm staying in a couple of refuges uh, up, uh, you know, two and a half thousand meters uh, or so. And I want to see what sort of a sleeping bag I should be taking with me. And it turns out the minimum temperature is going to be around 12 uh, degrees Celsius. And the uh, freezing uh, point is going to be over 4,000 meters and as high as four and a half thousand meters, which is ridiculously high. 
even in the middle of uh, summer. It's just a reminder that the planet is uh, warming. And it's uh, another reason why I wanted to have uh, Lindsay from Protect Our Winters uh, on board, because uh, you do some brilliant work in um, helping people with awareness and also coming together, uh, bringing together uh, campaigns where people can actually do something about it. And I believe, uh, well, I have you on because you have a new campaign, uh, Lindsay, uh, coming up. I wondered if you could tell us, you know, what it is. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, as as you know, and um, hopefully like listeners you've heard before will know, Textile Winters exists to help people who are passionate about outdoor and mountain sports become more effective climate advocates so that together we can campaign for effective solutions to climate change. Part of that in terms of the campaigns is knowing the right kind of moments to act. So in the UK, we are coming up to the next general election, and that's a great moment for people to have a say, have a voice, and really let the people who have that decision-making power know that it's important to them that uh, we take effective climate action. So you're helping to organise, a, 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 you know, lobbying of uh, politicians. Is that is that what we're talking about? So we're about to launch a campaign called Send It For Climate, where we are asking everyone who likes to spend time outdoors to send a postcard in two protect our winters and we will collect them all and go and deliver them to politicians in the run up to the next general election with the hope that we can get some really strong promises in the manifestos because then people are held, whichever whoever the next government is, is held to those promises and that we'll have to make them those kind of policy changes. And, uh, you know, this may seem like a kind of, I don't know, uh, a dumb question, but I wonder if we could just like clarify why this is uh, important, particularly in the context of uh, the alpine environment. Sure. So um, we are in a climate emergency. Um, human activities and emissions are driving global warming, um, which obviously for an industry and for activities that depend on stable outdoor climates and particularly cold climates, um, it's going to have a big impact on. We're also at a very critical point in terms of our reaction to that. So this next kind of seven years, we have a, a chance to make a real difference and the activities that we do now could mean the difference between basically 1.5 degrees of warming, which is what the scientists have all said that we really need to try and stick to, or upwards of three, which is going to spell a lot of problems, um, not just for alpine industry and sports, but wider than that across the world. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we're conscious of uh, the effect uh, across the uh, planet. But one of the issues uh, for ski, you know, even if that is, uh, you know, uh, uh, thinking about our own industry and ourselves, but there is an existential threat uh, to skiing. And that's not just the uh, the people who go on holidays. It's for all the people who live in the mountains and work in those uh, communities around them. It's, uh, you know, it's highly uh, significant from that point of view. So apart from the kind of moral obligation uh, there is a lot that we can still do to be able to achieve that. So just remind me, so you're saying that Send It uh, for Climate hasn't launched yet. When is it going to launch and how can people get involved? When does this podcast go out? Because <laughs> we're recording it out. And it's, um, we're currently so... Friday the uh, 18th and uh, probably go out on Monday. Okay, so give us a couple more days. <laughs> um, no, in the next week or so, uh, all the details will be available on the Protect Our Winters website. We did a bit of a soft launch at the Cycling World Championships up in Glasgow last week. And 
kind of got out there and started talking to people who love mountain biking and love spending time in the mountains in the summer and got their reactions. And we're taking a few learnings from that. But as of about two weeks time, um, all the details will be up on the Protect Summit's website and also the postcards and some post boxes will be available in some of our partners' stores. For example, Ellis Brigham are going to put them in their bigger stores. Um, Patagonia and Oosh and a few other brands came behind it as well. So there will be multiple ways for people to get involved. Um, and if you can't actually get to a store to get a postcard and post it, you can just make your own and put uh, post it to free post, send it. And that will come to us and let us know why it's important to you as someone who loves the mountains and spending time outside that the next government that's coming in puts in place climate positive policy. Cool. I like it. And there's a, the, you know, the point that you're trying to achieve here is the scale of it. And so it's not just individuals, it's organisations can get involved in this as well, right? Absolutely. If um, if you're an organisation or a professional that works in the outdoor industry, um, we want to kind of coordinate that voice across individuals who love spending time outside, the businesses that work outside. You just mentioned, you know, the the stable climate is important for those mountain communities and the, the businesses and the people that live there year round, not just those that go and visit. So it's what we really want the government to understand or the decision makers that, that come in, whoever the next government is, is that this is a very big industry who ha are very concerned about this and need action to be taken because the future of our industry really depends on it. Yeah, well, uh, that's great, Lindsay. What I, I will do is um, if... If there's nowhere that I could put a link to uh, initially, I'll certainly be sharing it on social media afterwards, but I'll put it into the show notes uh, retrospectively uh, as well. And uh, you know, keep up the good work because Protect Our Winters you know, across the globe is extremely good at bringing people together and organizing these lobbying campaigns, which is, uh, which is excellent. So thanks very much. Now, uh, listener, if you have listened to episode 182, you'll have known that I was out in Australia uh, last month and you'll have heard my thoughts on a perisher and thread bow. Uh, you know, it, it's great for skiing uh, for a short break if you happen to live in New South Wales or Canberra. Uh, they have been struggling for snow this season and just, you know, it's obviously related. Uh, I've seen it's their ninth warmest July they've ever had in Australia. And the snow has been pretty bad, although they had 10 centimetres uh, this morning. But there are a couple of things I, were, I wasn't able to get into the last episode. And I wanted just to uh, cover uh, a couple of points. Firstly... Skier numbers have actually been really good this year. They had record numbers of skiers in 2023 because they were closed in 2022. Uh, so that was, you know, the comeback post-COVID. But it has caused some issues on the slopes. And uh, if you've looked around social media, you might see that Perisher have had a right knocking uh, on social media, especially uh, on TikTok. You know, people sharing videos of big uh, queues, uh, etc. Um, now, I just wanted to chip in and say, I think that was pretty unfair. You know, like a lot of stuff you see on social media that lasts, you know, 10 seconds, it doesn't necessarily give you a real picture of what's going on. You know, when I was out there, you had high winds and sometimes, you know, you can't do anything about the weather as Jen discovered when you're in uh, uh, VT. You know, if you do have high winds, you know, lifts do close and it just means there's fewer lifts uh, open. And those videos that I saw, they were so, uh, they just captured a really small moment, the beginning of the day on a day when the uh, lifts were closed. Uh, and it's, you know, bad PR for a perisher. And, but what was really interesting to me 
was how Threadbow have kind of responded uh, to that. Because, you know, these two uh, resorts are in competition, direct competition with each other. You know, if someone's going from Sydney or Canberra, they can decide, right, am I going to go to Threadbow, Threadbow or I'm going to go to Perisher? And Perisher sort of built up this little reputation, perhaps unfairly, for having these queues on occasion. And Threadbow, who, to, who when I was interviewing them, they referred to the guys at Perisher as, you know, those, those people over the road. <laughs> the, they, they know they're there. They know their direct competition. But what they've brought in uh, is really interesting is a cap on lift pass sales. And they've been, you know, talking about this. So they're really trying to get that message across that, you know, they're going to have a, a limited number of lift passes uh, available. And I actually asked uh, Richie Carroll, who's their brand and marketing manager, uh, uh, for a quote. I didn't get it in our interview, but he, he said to me, um, our decision to cap ski passes and manage daily capacity is to ensure a premium ski guest uh, experience for our guests. Uh, we've been rolling this out for the last two years uh, and some peak season dates are expected to sell out. Now, I, again, I thought it was really interesting that they've done it at the same time um, as, you know, the the other resort across the road have uh, had some queues. And, you know, as someone who works in marketing, I just find that, you know, really interesting uh, timing and a great way of, you know, piecing together a message, even if apparently they haven't reached the uh, the maximum on that uh, cap of passes uh, at all yet. Uh, Jen? Yeah, I, I find it really, I think it's a really interesting idea. And yeah, I can see the bigger picture of like preserving the mountains. What I find, maybe you know the answer, what, I, what I'd love to know, and the, the word I pick out from that is guests. And so as someone who works and lives in the mountains, I'd be interested to know, is that cap, you know, are they looking at capping the locals and the seasonaires or however it is that the workers work in the, the resorts there? Or is that just aimed at people who are coming for a week's holiday or a long weekend, for example? Do you know, are they limiting local passes as well? That is a really good question. And I can't recall the answer to that, but I can't imagine that you would uh, limit anyone who has a season pass. So they must have a, a way of managing around that. It's interesting because I there's there's nothing that I'm aware of in our local resorts through France through the Tarentaise that where they're limiting the passes as such. But what I do see is a real lean towards prioritising tourists and visitors coming skiing, and those prices being monitored and kept reasonable-ish. I say in inverted commas, but the locals' passes. That used to exist were abolished last year kind of across the board in France and season air passes and things like that no longer exist so it's making it harder and harder and much more expensive for people to work in the mountains and buy a lift pass for the season um it's it's a very expensive place to work and live we choose to do that because it's beautiful and we absolutely love it and we love the quality of life and that's fine um, but for example, local passes in the plan went from, I think it was like £400 or something per adult to seven or 800, just under £800, I think, per adult. Um, and depending on where you lived, uh, the, the local mayors and communes grouped together and paid for the children's passes if they were in the school. But some communes couldn't afford to do that. And so then you were also looking at buying kids' passes. So as a family of four, all of a sudden you're paying. Uh, what was maybe five or six hundred pounds you're looking at suddenly paying two thousand pounds for lift passes so i see that starting to limit the number of people that are on the mountain like locals that are on the mountain for example 
Yeah, I mean, that would be an interesting uh, analysis to know on a daily basis how many people are skiing, are tourists, and how many are seasoned workers. I suspect the vast, vast majority will be uh, tourists, but um, I might follow that one up with uh, Threadbo if I, if I get the chance. But one other point on Australia. Um, I, I found it uh, really interesting that they have these things called lodges, which uh, work really very much like our chalets. I think the British are the only people who go for that chalet kind of concept uh, in Europe. Maybe the Dutch do it to a certain extent. Uh, but we have catered chalets, mixed groups, etc. And in Australia, they have these uh, lodges where you have exactly the same thing. I'm not sure that they necessarily... Uh, know that that culture exists over uh, out of the UK market uh, as well. Kind of interesting that in in many respects, Australia and the UK, you know, are very similar uh, cultures. Slightly different for some of them, um, you know, in Threadbow and uh, in Perisher, in that they're a bit more exclusive. It's almost like for some of them, you have to pay a membership to be able to be able to book in the first place and then book uh, on top of uh, that. Um, I was just going to say it's kind of interesting because from from what I know, it's a slightly more American model, um, the, the capping the lift passes and, and things like that. And I think there's I'd just be curious to know what kind of learnings have come out of the American resorts that could then be applied to the Australian resorts that are doing this. Um, and then also coming on to what you were saying about that kind of slightly more European style in Australia from the people that I spoke to in resorts last winter. The Australian market was huge and there were a lot more Australians coming over to Europe to ski, possibly as a slight hangover from COVID because they weren't able to for a couple of years. Um, but I wonder if if it is getting more exclusive and more expensive in Australia, whether that will keep up with people willing to travel further, remote working be a thing and they can travel for longer. So just, just be interesting to see where it goes. We bring up so many interesting points there, none of which are on my uh, running order, but I'm going to drop them in. Uh, that's all right. I'm going to drop them in anyway. Firstly, the point you make about Australians uh, traveling last winter. Absolutely. You know, Australia was uh, behind locked borders for a long time. And a lot of people took what you might call revenge holidays, you know, uh, post COVID where they're doing the big blowout holiday. And in the same way that I went to Australia just now to see my mum, people are coming from Australia to see, you know, relatives over in the UK and then doing a ski holiday as part of that as well. And um, secondly, you mentioned the American model. And it's no coincidence, I would say, that um, those Australian resorts are run much more on that American style model where all of the mountain restaurants and the, uh, the ski hire companies and the lift company are all the same people. You know, they control the whole thing. And in fact, Perisher is part of the Epic Pass. And the Epic Pass also in Australia includes um, Hotham and Falls Creek, I think. And some people suggested that one of the reasons they're getting more uh, people going to Perisher this year is because people are using that uh, Epic Pass. So that's possibly something else to uh, consider as well. I don't necessarily know the details uh, of that. The fact I went to Australia, uh, you know, apologies to anyone listening to episode 182. I said I was going to tell you about why I didn't, uh, you know, offset my flights. And I just simply forgot about it and missed it out. Um, as regular listeners will know, you know, I am trying to cut my carbon emissions and not to increase them. And flights to Australia, you know, are just massive in terms of uh, the emissions. Now, you know, I don't feel so bad about it because it's either I never see my mum again <laughs> or... Uh, you know, I don't fly to Australia. Uh, and in fact, Helen Coffey, uh, the editor of the travel editor of The Independent, who I interviewed a special episode that you can look up, they talked about these things as love miles. But um, I wanted to offset the carbon cost. 
And, you know, I'm not necessarily ideologically opposed to offsetting, but um, as some listeners will know, some of those projects, you know, they can be variable in their effectiveness. Now, some of them have been proved to um, protect rainforests that was never actually under threat or to fund carbon reduction projects that would have happened uh, anyway. And, you know, a lot of uh, work, you know, needs to go into researching your offsetting if you do, you know, choose to do that. I actually did it in a slightly uh, different way. And I donated to an organization called uh, Cool Earth. And I first came across this uh, via a book by a guy called William McCaskill, who uh, wrote a book called Doing Good Better, which I highly recommend if you're interested in doing good better. You know, he is one of the founders of a movement called Effective uh, Altruism. It's really interesting. I won't go into it all now, but donations to Cool Earth go direct to people living in the rainforest. And they can actually choose how to spend uh, that money in any way that they want to. But it's based on research that shows that this is the best way to uh, protect the rainforest. You give it to the people who live there so they actually have uh, an interest in it. So I'll put a few links into uh, the show notes. Uh, but Lindsay, you're from Protect Our Winters. You know, we're interested in, uh, you know, reducing emissions. I wondered if you had a view or if Protect Our Winters have a view on offsetting. Um, sure. Yeah, it's um, it's a hot topic over the last last few years. As as you say, it's come to the forefront that some of these schemes can have a very positive outcome. Some of them are a little bit more dubious about the benefits they bring. And um, that kind of lack of clarity makes it very difficult for individuals who are potentially looking to offset, you know, a travel or a particularly carbon intensive activity that they're doing. That's kind of, you know, an individual decision as to whether or not you want to want to do that. I think the main worry overall as a kind of more systemic level with offsets is whether or not they disincentivize reducing emissions and people start to think of them as an instead of instead of as a and. So it's, oh, well, you know, I can I, I will do this carbon intensive activity but I'll offset and it'll be fine. And we are not going to offset our way out of the climate emergency. It's it's just scientifically not possible. But what we can do is use offsets where we can't reduce those emissions. And I think that's where if you are, or if a person is going to go and do something that's quite carbon intensive, they can then either offset or double offset if you're a bit con concerned about the credibility and how useful it's going to be but also look at those ways that you can reduce your own emissions your organization's emissions and those systemic emissions because again the narrative around offsetting very much puts the impetus on the individual and individual action is important but we need the kind of large-scale societal systems changes that are going to make a really big difference cool well i think you summed that up uh, you know very uh, well like i said i'm not ideologically opposed to it but the much better solution is to actually reduce emissions or choose lower carbon uh, options as well and if you listen to the back catalogue of the ski podcast you'll hear about loads of ways of doing that including you know Lindsay's journey by train and electric vehicles uh, etc right we're moving towards the uh, close now 
Uh, I enjoy all feedback about the show. Uh, I do like to know what you think, uh, especially ideas for features. So please contact me on social at the Ski Podcast or by email thisskipodcast at gmail.com. Uh, got a couple of comments since the last episode. Uh, Doug uh, emailed uh, to say I listened to episode 182. That was about Australia on a run and loved it. Simon Burgess contacted me via Twitter saying I really enjoyed the Threadbow Perisher episode. Brought back some nice memories. So pleased to hear that, Simon. And Bo Banding contacted me by email. Uh, he said, truly enjoying the podcast, uh, but I'm wondering why you're never talking about Scandinavian ski resorts. There are a lot of good areas in those countries, except for Denmark, where Bo is from. Uh, now, that is a really good point, Bo. Uh, we did feature Svalbard in episode 94, Norway in episode 58. And I and a quick look, we had a special uh, interview with the cross-country skiers, uh, Andrew Musgrave and Andrew Young, who live and train in Norway. But I think you're right. I think we should have more. And, and I'm pretty sure that Rob Reese, who's contributed to the podcast a few times, uh, you know, recently went out to Sweden. So perhaps we can uh, discuss, get him on board to discuss that. But Bo, I'm going to take it on board. We'll uh, cover that. So if you like the podcast, there are a couple of things you can do to help. Um, first, you could review us on Apple Podcasts. We've got 102 uh, ratings so far. Uh, and secondly, you can always buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast. Uh, there are now 183 episodes to catch up with. Uh, 73% of them were listened to in the last week. I had a quick look in our analytics and I see our listens are up 29% in the last year, which is great. So thank you to all of our uh, listeners. And I see that they are from as far afield as uh, South Korea, uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran and Egypt. Uh, coming up in the next episode, I'm going to be reporting on hiking in Les Trois-Vallées and also going to be uh, taking part in the Zermatt Ultrax uh, trail race. So I'll be reporting on that and hopefully uh, testing the Alpine Crossing, the new lift that goes between Klein Matterhorn in Zermatt and Testa Grigia in uh, Chavinia. But in the meantime, you can follow me at Skipedia and the podcast at the Ski Podcast. And I would like to thank Les Trois-Vallées for sponsoring the show and thank my guest today, Jen. Thank you. Thanks. It's been a pleasure as always. Lovely to speak to you both. And Lindsay. Oh, thanks for having me and thanks for supporting Protect Our Winters and uh, letting everybody know about what they can do to protect the sport we love. No problem. I will always endeavour to uh, do that. And finally, listener, thank you for joining us. And until next time, goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ski Podcast. Don't forget that if you want to support the podcast, then remember to book your ski hire with Intersport and use the code SKIPODCAST or simply take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Thanks again and have a great winter.